Okay, everybody. Uh, we're going to show a, a video. Tony and Amber have done a great job. Uh, Tony and Amber Ellswick have done a great job of updating us the last couple of years as they've been in Nicaragua. Uh, they're really good with these, uh, doing these short little videos, uploading them to uh, the Vimeo website, which is very user-friendly. So we have one of those that they did this last week for us, and uh, we're going to show that now. And, uh, and then Richard will come back. Richard, we want to finish by 1130. Um, and we'll have one more little report. So if you go to about 1120, that'd be great. And yeah, you don't need to leave time for questions. Just make people think. Don't give them an opportunity to ask questions. Um, but uh, anyway, so go ahead, Joe. Hey, Redeemer. Uh, we're the Ellswicks, and we are here in Nicaragua. We're excited that you guys are studying the gospel in the world this weekend, and we wanted to give you a little update on how our family and our work is going here in Managua. So we're coming to the close of our second year here in Nicaragua. Can you believe it? Um, all four girls are home, homeschooling again. Uh, Nicolette is in kindergarten, and Abigail is in youth group, so that is pretty crazy. Um, they are doing a lot of extracurricular activities this, this um, semester. They're, the girls are part of Girl Scouts overseas, and they're also, the three oldest are learning violin. And currently, our new pet count is three dogs, one cat, and we're down a bird from last year, but we're up a new rabbit. So that is exciting for the girls. <laughs> For our work, there's two exciting uh, things as well. The first one is that this summer, the General Assembly for our denomination uh, selected certain men to put together the requirements for ordination for the, the church here in Nicaragua. And so uh, we had our first meeting this uh, just a few weeks ago in Lakeland, and it was exciting getting together with these men, dreaming about what the Lord would do, and talking about those requirements. Uh, it's it's really humbling to be able to be a part of the the beginnings of a new Presbyterian denomination here in Nicaragua. Uh, the second thing that's exciting is as we're seeing that our theological education is growing and thriving. Uh, we're we're happy to hear that Richard Pratt is there this weekend. His third millennium ministries created the materials that we're using with our pastors and our lay leaders. Uh, in fact, we went around and we visited most of our groups this weekend, and the report we're getting back is really uh, encouraging and exciting. We're hearing pastors talking about growing in their, in the, their relationship with the Lord, finally starting to be able to have some, some good, solid answers to give to doubters. We're, we're hearing about one couple. We have a husband and wife that are learning it together, and they talk about staying up late in the night to talk about the theological issues that they're learning about, about Susser and Vassal treaties, as, as exciting as that sounds. Um, but it is exciting to see how the Lord's working and changing. We're getting requests for new groups. In fact, we'll be starting one new group, hopefully in the next few weeks, which will bring our count of students and pastors over 30, uh, which is really encouraging to see. Hey, we uh, thank you for all your prayers and your support as we work to bring more training, more pastors, and more churches here to Nicaragua. Okay, this is our last talk. Hmm. I've been trying to figure out what to do. I do this a lot, so I don't have to, you know, I got options here. Okay, let's do this. 
uh, we've talked about a lot of things just in our little bit of time together. We've talked about how our mission goes back to the beginning. The reason you breathe is for the mission. It's not something you add to your life. It's why you're here. We talked about the idea that it's a relay race, right? That's something you get from somebody else and you pass on. And the, it's important not to drop the baton. And we've talked about now this morning about how it involves conflict. And that there's a war going on. And that the good news of Jesus is about victory. Victory over evil. Everywhere in the world. And that we can tell people, even before it, in, before it all happens, we can tell them it's done deed. It's done. Get on board. And you can, you can have a part in that victory too. But now what I'd like to talk to you about is sort of an adjusting of your vision for life. Your life. This church. I think everybody would know that what I'm saying is true. That when you start a big project... You need a big vision to go along with it. Uh, it's, I mean, it's the kind of vision that needs to be big enough and it needs to get down deep inside of you so that when the hard times come, and they always come, don't they? I mean, every project is worth doing. It's not easy to do. So when the hard times come, that vision that's out there and inside of you can push you through. The hard times, because if, if your vision's too small, you know what's going to happen. You're just basically going to say, this is too hard. And you're going to just marginalize it, push it off to the side, and go on with your ordinary life. And that's the way it is with this mission that we're on with Jesus. I mean, the, the vision of taking the gospel, the victory message of Jesus to the whole world, it's a big one. I mean, it's a big one even for you to start saying, you know, I can find ways to do that too in my own life. That's, that's, that's a big project, and it's not going to be easy. And so when the hard times come, you need something that can compel you through those hard times. And it's got to be a vision that's big enough and gets down inside of you so it pushes you through, but not just you, your children, something you can give to your children, it's worth living for, uh, and your grandchildren after them, this is worth living for. It's got to be that big. And there are, I think there are lots of places in the Bible where you can find that vision. But I, in my personal life and as I go around talking to other people, I have found that one of the best places to find that vision is very succinct and it's very powerful, the way Jesus puts it, is in what we usually call the Lord's Prayer. Remember that thing? Do you ever recite the Lord's Prayer here? In this church? Used to. Right? Do you now? No. Okay. Well, okay, so we can't assume everybody knows the Lord's Prayer. If you want to look at it in the Bible, it's found in Matthew chapter 6. But I think most of you know the Lord's Prayer. I'd like for us to sort of say it to each other, okay? But before we do, I need to ask you, do you have trespassers or debtors in this church? Debtors? Okay. So if you're a trespasser, you're off the hook, okay? Okay, so forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, okay? All right, so um, in, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was asked the question, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he said, pray this way. Can you recite it with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we've just recited words many of us recite at least once a week, some of us every single day. And we confess to you, even as we begin to reflect on these words that you gave your disciples thousands of years ago, that they're so familiar that we can easily pass right over them. And so we pray now that Holy Spirit will come. Holy Spirit, come to us and enable us to see things we have not seen before and to believe them and to live them. And as you do, we'll praise you for it. Amen. You know, you might wonder, why would you talk about vision and a prayer? Okay? Why would you look at a prayer to get vision? But it's really not that hard to understand. I mean, think about your own life. When do you pray? I mean, when do you really pray? You might be the kind of Christian that never prays, you know, and you go through all day you never prayed. You, get, you lay your head on the pillow and you say, oh, gosh, I forgot to pray for my kids. So you start saying, oh, Lord, please bless. You, know, you might be that kind of Christian. A lot of Christians are that way. I often, I often remember as I'm drifting off to sleep, gosh, I haven't prayed for the grandkids yet today. So I'll say, please, please, please. And, okay, so I know people do that. And maybe you are a person that just never prays at all. But I can tell you this, when something big happens in your life, you start praying. You can't find a job, you start praying. If you're headed for a divorce, you start praying. If your kids are in trouble, you start praying. I mean, atheists start praying in those times. And why is that? It's because these are important things to you. And when important things happen, uh, you begin to pray. So I think it's fair to say that when Jesus says, pray this way, he's not just telling us how to pray, he's also telling us what ought to be important to us, what was important to him, what was supposed to be important to his disciples, and what's supposed to be important to us. And I think that most of us could find the important things about our Christian life somewhere in that prayer. If you just think about it for a minute, I think you can find yourself in there. Yeah, that's important to me. But I have found that in my own life and in the lives of most evangelicals in this country especially, that most of us live our Christian lives out of the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer. You know how it goes. Give us this day our daily bread, which basically means, Lord, please take care of me. Meet my needs. Forgive us our debts, which basically means, I'm sorry, I did it again. I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. Um, lead us not into temptation, which basically means, help me do better tomorrow than I did today, please. You know, take care of me. Forgive me. Help me do better. If that's where you are in your Christian life, way to go. If those are the priorities of your life, that's fantastic because you're way ahead of most of the world. Most of the world just kind of bounces from one thing to another, not knowing what in the world they're doing, not having any priorities at all. So if you find yourself in the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer, that's fantastic. 
I'm thrilled for you. But I am convinced of this, that that's not where the big vision for life is. Did you notice that there's a common word, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation? It's no wonder that's where we gravitate. It's all about us. And isn't your life all about us? I mean, like if you're super spiritual, you might care about other people a little bit, but basically it's all about me. Thank you very much. You got your iPhone. I know you do. The top half of the Lord's Prayer is where the big vision is. You know, it's the part that you go through as quickly as you can so you can get down to something that means something to you. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, the top half. And, you know, it's very different. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Do you see the difference? But that's where the big vision is. That's where the compelling vision is. Is in the top half of the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus said those words in the first half of the Lord's Prayer, uh, he was calling on his disciples to do some adjusting in their lives, to change what they believed about certain things, to change what they felt about those things, to change what they did about those things. He was, he was calling on them to, to adjust things in their lives. And I think when we look at what he says, he's going to call us to adjust things too. And the first thing that he calls you and me to adjust, to change, is what we believe about God. Our Father. Now those are precious words to Christians. It's one of the most remarkable things about our faith. And it means this, that the one who made everything, I mean everything from the tiniest tiniest invisible world that we now know about to the billions of galaxies that we can't even measure or count. The one that made all of that and the one who keeps it all together, God, the creator, can become your personal spiritual father. That's unbelievable. That he can know you by name. That he can care about what you care about. And that he'll protect you and provide for you and, and love you like a good father should. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. Our father. Those are precious words to Christians. And, you know, in a group this size, there's probably somebody here who's never experienced God loving them that way. Maybe you believe there's a God, but you just don't know him as your spiritual father. A caring and kind and concerned God. And um, there's some good news for people that may not have experienced that. It's not hard. It's not hard to get there. Uh, the way the Bible puts it is this. It says that to as many as receive Jesus, to them he gives the right to be called the children of God. So really all you have to do if you want to know God as your father is just come to Jesus. But... <clears throat> We live in a culture, I don't know where we get these ideas, but we get them maybe from TV or movies or even sometimes children's books, that as soon as we say God is our Father, um, a, an image sort of pops into our heads. And it's, an, it's a picture of God. And the picture goes something like this, that God is like a sweet granddaddy. 
who sits up in heaven in his celestial rocking chair. He's got a long white beard, you know, old man up there. You know, the old man up there. And he's sitting in his rocking chair up there, just kind of looking down on the earth like this. And he's wringing his hands because he sees how bad things are down here. And he says to himself, oh, I wish my children on the earth would just pay more attention to me. Because if they'd pay attention to me, uh, I'd make life so much better for them. Because after all, I exist to make my little children on the earth happy. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happy. I'm so happy. That's what a good God would want you to have. Happy. Because he's like a sweet mm, granddaddy up there. I know what a sweet granddaddy is. I'm the best in the universe. I'm the sweetest one of all. I adore my grandchildren. You know that already. But I haven't told you this. They adore me. But I'm no fool. I know exactly why. When they were little, this is what I would do every time I saw them. I would hug them and I would whisper in their ear, I love you so much. And then the next thing I would say every single time was this. Do you want to go to Toys R Us now? And I'd take them and I'd buy them whatever they wanted. You want one of those? Let's get two. Two's better. Three is even better than that. Let's just get them. Come on, this is going to be great. And so when I walk into the room, they salivate like Pavlov's dogs. It's unbelievable. I mean, they adore me, but I know exactly why. It's because I'm a sweet old granddaddy that wants nothing more than his grandchildren to love him and to be happy. And every grandfather in here knows that feeling. Am I telling the truth, men? Yeah, okay. I mean, you'll do anything to make them happy, make them safe, make life good for them. That's what sweet granddaddies do. And so it's easy for us to hear our father and think that that's what Jesus is talking about. But there's a clue here that that's not the case. It's not what Jesus had in mind because he doesn't say simply pray our father. What does he say? Pray our father in heaven. And when you look in the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, it doesn't matter. When the Bible describes heaven, it doesn't describe God on a rocking chair. It describes God on a throne. Heaven is the throne room of God. It's where God sits on a throne, blinding light radiates from him. A river of fire pours out from beneath his feet. And there are these creatures, weird creatures, six wings and things, that are flying around all over the place. And they're crying out day and night, holy, 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 hallowed be your name. You see, that's what Jesus is talking about, that picture of God. God on the throne. God as the king. You might be surprised to know this, but in the days of the Old Testament and the New Testament, both in Israel and outside of Israel, it was very common for people to call their human kings, human kings, their fathers. It was a title for kings. So when Jesus says, pray this way, our father in heaven, this is what he's saying, pray this way, our royal father enthroned in heaven. May your name be kept holy. Jesus is telling his disciples that the bottom line of having a vision that's worth living for is to know that God is the king over all creation. In fact, this is the number one way that the Bible reveals God to us. He's our king. We often miss it, but watch the songs that you sing. They have them. They have that there a lot. 
I mean, we'll think of God in all kinds of ways, but the bottom line is that the Bible says that God is our king, and that's a huge problem for you and me because we don't have a clue what that means. Not a clue. Why? We live in America. We don't have kings in America. Most of us today have never had a moment in life when we have lived under the authority of a human king, a king that has our life and our death in his hands, who can decide like that what to do with us. Most of us have never had that experience. So when we read that the Bible says God is our king, we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what that means. I come from Virginia. We've got the best flag in the Union, Virginia. It's a great flag. I don't know what happened with Florida. I mean, the only one worse, I think, is probably Texas. The only state flag that's worse is Texas, you know, the one star, lone star. You know, we wish you were alone. But anyway, I like Texans. Um, the Virginia state flag is beautiful. If you want to Google it right now, be just fine with me. You can verify that what I'm saying is true. Let me describe it to you because it's got this nice, solid blue satin background. And in the middle of the Virginia state flag is a circle. Most people know that much because if you've ever sort of looked around at state flags in the United States, you know that much. There's Virginia, blue, circle in the middle. But I want to take you inside the circle because most people don't know what's in the circle. And it's a picture of you. Inside the circle is a picture of a man lying dead on his back on the ground. Nice, huh? And next to him is a crown that's fallen off of his head. He's a dead king. Okay? So you got this picture of a dead king lying on the ground on his back with the crown next to him on the ground. And standing over this dead king is a woman who has a spear in one hand and her foot on the chest of this dead king. You got the picture there? It's a woman with her foot on the chest of a dead king. And written around the edge of that circle are these words in Latin, sic semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. You got the message? We will not have a king in the state of Virginia. <laughs> and if anybody tries to become our king, we know exactly what to do. We send our women after them. <laughs> I think that's the message anyway. Actually, it's woman liberty, of course. Why do we feel that way in Virginia? Why do we think that way about human kings? I had the feeling it's not just Virginians that feel that way. But why do we feel that way? I think we all kind of know. It's because human kings are terribly inconvenient to have around. I mean, they have weird ideas. I'm the king. That means my agenda is more important than yours. What? My glory is more important than yours. You ought to be happy to serve my purposes. You ought to be happy to die for my purposes. That's what kings do. And for that reason, we're having nothing of that. Nothing. In fact, we are so brainwashed in this country that we actually believe that a government of the people, by the people, 
and for the people is the way to go. I hate to tell you this, but when you have a government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people, it isn't long before you have religion that's of the people, by the people, and for the people. Where your religion becomes life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, when that was first said, the idea of happiness was not quite what people have in mind these days. But you'll hear it today, that I have a right given to me by God to be happy, which means I can just do anything I want to do without any restraint other than I can't step on you as I do it. But the reality is, is that Jesus is saying to his disciples, you want a vision for life that's worth living for? It starts right here. God is your king. I mean, don't you know he made you? Don't you know he gives you every breath you take? Some of you have gone through illnesses. Some of you right now are going through illness. And you know that every breath you take is a gift. But most people in the room today just sort of figure they're going to keep breathing forever. No, every breath you take has been given to you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been bought You've been bought with the price of Jesus' blood. So he owns you. He owns you. Lock, stock, and barrel. You are his. You belong to him. He is your king. His agenda is more important than your agenda. His glory is more important than your glory. His delight is more important than your delight. And yes, you ought to be happy to serve him. And yes, you ought to be happy to die for him. I think we've got some adjusting to do. I'm amazed sometimes how we, and this is a Presbyterian church, whether you knew it or not. Um, you know, Presbyterians like to talk all the time about the sovereignty of God. Oh, wonderful. It's kind of one of our slogans God is sovereign but you know what sovereign means it means he's the king now what we usually mean when we say God is sovereign is things like predestination election things like that you know that makes us different from everybody else which I guess is important but anyway um, that's what we normally mean by that but when the Bible talks about God as the sovereign, God as the king, what it actually emphasizes is not so much God is in control of everything, but rather the loyalty we owe to him as our king and that he is our commander. Is that the kind of God we're talking about for you and me? Or has God become just an idea an abstraction. We live with a God who sits on a throne and who calls on his people to set aside their lives because our lives belong to him. So the bottom line question for us today is, if we're going to be on mission and we want a vision that's big enough to get us through the hard times, it can't be things like, well, I'll do the mission so long as it's convenient.
It can't be things like, I'll do the mission so long as I can keep my job. So long as I can keep living in that house that I've grown accustomed to. So long as I can keep the friends and keep my relatives happy. I'll be in the mission so long as it fulfills me. The mission is a call from the king. And we've got to set aside our American ideas and endorse the ideas that Jesus, our Savior, has given to us. Okay, I think we have some adjusting to do when it comes to who God is. We can look at other groups and we can tell that they're all into that be happy in Jesus and we can laugh at them and we can say they're so superficial. They should become glum like us and believe in the sovereignty of God. They should become boring like us. Then they'd be better off, right? But what we have done with the sovereignty of God is turn it into something that it's not. He is our king. But Jesus in the Lord's Prayer also calls us to change something else, to do adjustments on something else. It's going to sound weird, but let me go ahead and say it, because you'll see it. He called on his disciples to change the way they think about the earth. Life on this planet, this short little thing that you're involved in right now, what you do here and what it's all about here. And you know he does because of what he says next. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So let's unpack it a little bit. What did he have in mind about the earth how, how do we need to be changing what we think about living here breathing this air doing the things we do well the first thing he says about it is he says may your kingdom come well that's nice that's another one of those religious phrases that we throw around when the kingdom comes that, you know and we just have very little idea of what it even means I mean my grandmother used to use that expression all the time when the kingdom comes uh, every time we would go to the kitchen and ask her if we could have some more ice cream or pie, uh, she would say, sure, when the kingdom comes. And I knew exactly what that meant as a four-year-old. And that meant, get out of here, you're bothering me. When the kingdom comes, it's sort of like in the sweet by and by, something out there, out there is going to happen when the kingdom comes. But Jesus doesn't leave us guessing as to what the kingdom coming is. May your kingdom come did not mean what my grandmother meant it to me. He says, may your kingdom come, and he tells us right away, Jesus, what does that mean? May your will be done, and that makes sense to us. We can get that, because what kind of king would he be if his will was not being done? What kind of sovereign would he be if he was not being obeyed? But Jesus, where do you want that to happen? And his answer is, on earth, as it is in heaven. Now, if you and I had written this prayer, we would have probably written it something like this. May your kingdom come and may your will be done in heaven because that's where we're going to spend eternity and we really want it to be nice up there. But it's not what Jesus said. 
I want you to notice something, that the destiny of God's will, the destiny of God's kingdom is not heaven. The destiny of the kingdom is the earth. Heaven is the standard, not the destiny. And when you think about how God's will is done in that heavenly throne room, you look at the Bible and you see what happens there, everybody in the throne room does exactly what God on the throne says to do. You would too if you were before the blinding radiance of the holy God of heaven and earth. You wouldn't even think about doing something contrary to what he said. Even the devil, even the devil does what God says when he's in the throne room. Now when he leaves, he does like you and me. He does what he wants to do. But when you're in the throne room before God, everybody does exactly what the king on the throne says. You don't even hesitate because you know what will happen to you if you do. But down here on the earth, it's not the way it is. Well, Jesus is telling us something. He's telling us that that's the way he wants things to be on the earth. Just like they are in heaven. So that God's will is obeyed perfectly by every creature on this planet. Why would Jesus say something like that? I mean, keep in mind what the world was like in his day. Why would he say something like that? Why didn't he just say, you know, forget about the earth. What we need to really be concentrating on is getting into heaven. It's because Jesus knew the Bible. He knew that from the very beginning, the reason human beings live on this planet is to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over it, to make the earth the kind of place God wants it to be. That's why we were put here. He knew that the reason God chose Israel was to be the A-team that would lead the human race in that direction. And that out of Israel would come a king, a human king, who would lead the entire world into doing God's will in every single corner. He knew that that was the plan all along. And he knew that God was not going to fail in it. And so he tells us in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, make that your dream, make that your goal, make that your destiny, that God's will will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. And nothing short of that is worthy of Jesus. And nothing short of that is worthy of you. You are the image of God. Nothing short of that is worthy of you. Think about it this way. Suppose you were to ask an unbeliever. Now, I mean somebody that would say they're an unbeliever, okay? Not you. Somebody would say, I'm not a believer. And if you were to ask them this question, uh, what would be a good life? You know, the kind of life you would be glad to have lived. So that at the last minute, as you're taking your last breath, you could say, I'm glad I lived this life rather than another life. What would most of your unbelieving friends in your family or in your neighborhood or at work, what would they say? Well, 
looking around the room and seeing what kind of people you are, probably most of them would say something like this. A good life, huh? Well, I'd have to say this. I hope not to get divorced more than once because that's really bad. It really hurts. I don't want to go through that again. And, you know, I couldn't really call this a good life if my kids were not doing well. If my kids don't do well, it really wouldn't be good. Everybody needs money, so I guess if I could have a better job and if I could make lots of money, then I could retire early. Now, that's a good life, retiring early because then I could enjoy life before I get too old to enjoy it. That would be good. And I know everybody's going to get sick and die, but, you know, I just really want to die with as little pain as possible. And unbelievers will say things like, and, you know, the best way to die is in the middle of the night when you don't even know it. You just kind of go to sleep and then you die. And probably most of the people you know would say something like this. If, if when I die, if I discover there is a God, I hope he'll agree with me that I was good enough to get in to heaven. Isn't that where most of your unbelieving relatives and friends are? That their greatest hope is that when they die, if they discover there is a God, that he'll agree with them that they were good enough to get into heaven? Well, if that's where you are today, I hate to tell you this, but nobody's good enough. Nobody is good enough. Not before that kind of God. And that's why Christians talk about holding on to Jesus. It's because he was good enough. There's only been one that's been really good enough to make it in and to be accepted as he was. And that's Jesus. And that's why we, we Christians put our faith in him. That's why we stand in his shadow. That's why we hold on to him for dear life. Because we understand he's our only hope for getting acceptance from God. Okay, that's a pretty sad idea of what a good life is, if you ask me. That at the end of it all, you just sort of hope that maybe God will agree you are good enough to get in. But suppose you were to ask a Christian. Now, I mean real Christians now, okay? I mean like you. You know, the kind that read the Bible and go to church and maybe even go to a small group. Do you have small groups in your church? Oh, wow. And you go to the small group church. Wow. Unbelievable. You know, you're really committed as a Christian. What, what would we say if somebody asked us, what would be a good life? You know, the kind of life you would be glad to have lived so that at the last minute as you're taking your last breath, you can say, I live this life rather than another life. What would we say? Well, at least half of us would say, hope not to get divorced more than once because it really hurts I couldn't call that a good life and you know I if my kids aren't doing well life isn't worth living everybody needs money so if I could get a good job that paid more money then I could retire early and I could enjoy life before I get too old to enjoy life that would really be sweet and I know everybody's going to get sick and die but you know I, I, don't want to, I, I don't want to have pain. I just want to die with as little pain as possible. And even Christians will say, even Christians will say, the best way to die is in the middle of the night because you go to sleep and you don't even know what's going to happen. I think that's the worst way to die. I've always prayed for a two-minute warning. 
And if God gives me that prayer, and he likes me, he gives me lots of prayers. My wife and daughter have agreed that they're going to have their cell phones ready, okay? So, you know, I want two minutes because i got some things to say that I've been holding back. And so if you hear that I die, go to Facebook and watch for my two-minute video, okay? Because if God answers my prayer, I'm going to let you know what I really think about things. But most people don't want to do that. Most people don't want, don't want to know that they're going to die. They just want to try to ignore it as much as possible and maybe then just go to sleep. And that's where the story changes though, right? Because we believe that when we die, uh, something's going to happen to our souls. Maybe they'll begin to shake. I don't know. But something will happen. And they'll, maybe they'll sparkle and we'll get wings and we'll fly away to heaven. And when we get there... Peter will be there at the gate, and he'll say, you're welcome to come in because you have the blood of Jesus on you, and that's all true. It's fine and good. But then we think he'll say, wait just a minute, and he'll go over to this big closet, and he'll pull out of the closet a gigantic golden harp, and he'll hand it to you, and he'll say, now, this is what you get to do forever. You get to stand over there in that choir and play this harp forever and forever and forever and forever. You ever been in a choir? That sounds more to me like the other side rather than heaven. But I guess we figure out that we're going to have some kind of celestial Prozac or something that will make us think that's bliss. That's the greatest dream most Christians have for themselves is that they will one day be able to fly away to heaven and play harps and sing in choirs forever. I have some good news for you. Jesus did not die for you to give you a golden harp. Jesus did not resurrect from the dead so that you would be a disembodied spirit floating around in the clouds forever. Jesus did not ascend into heaven. He's not ruling over all the earth until all of his enemies are put under his feet so that you would spend eternity on celestial Prozac. Jesus is coming back. He did all those other things that he did, not so that you would go to heaven, but so that you would inherit the earth. The meek, he said, will inherit the earth. One day, Jesus is coming back to this place. And when he comes back to this place, evil will be eliminated. And it will all belong to him. He'll make it all new, and then he's going to look at people like you and me, people who have lived for him, people who have trusted in him, and he's going to say, it's all mine, but now it's all yours too. That's our dream. That's our goal. That's our vision, and we should never settle for anything less than that vision, the new heavens and the new earth. The day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, whether in heaven above, on the earth, or beneath the earth, to the glory, the visible glory of God shining throughout this planet. That's our dream. That's why you're in this thing called Christianity. That's why you believe in Jesus. It's because all things are yours. Isn't that wonderful? You know, right now, in this world we live in right now, with all of its disappointments, 
with all the violence that's everywhere, the horrors of sickness, the suffering that goes on, and it all just ends up in dying one way or another anyway, all that nightmare that we call living on this planet. You know, even during that, we get glimpses of what it means to be the image of God in a world of God's glory. We get glimpses of it. It's when you hear that concert that just takes your breath away or you see that sunrise and you go, I have never seen anything as beautiful as that. You know, it's when you have your first child. It's the first time you fall in love. That ecstasy, that wonder, that joy. We get glimpses of what it would be like even now. Hold on to those glimpses because you need them. Don't ignore them. They're very important. But now imagine this world. No more sin. No more sickness. No more violence. No more injustice. No more shame for anything you have ever done. Imagine that world, a world that's so wondrous, so perfect, so magnificent that it is right for God himself to fill the sky with his glory. That's the world Jesus is going to give you. That's the world that is yours. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. Not just that he takes care of your personal problems and you float away to heaven for eternal bliss. That's what Hinduism thinks. That's what Buddhism thinks. That's not what our religion teaches. Our religion teaches that we will inherit the earth. It will be his and it will be ours. And that kind of religion is worth living for. That kind of religion is worth dying for. You know, there is a religion today that still believes that. It's not yours, by the way. There still is a religion that believes that the purpose of life is to spread the will of God to the ends of the earth. Not yours. Don't misunderstand me. There is a religion today that still believes that faithful servants of God will give their whole lives to that task. There's a religion that actually believes that people who love God and love his ways are willing to die for the sake of God. It's not your religion. Your religion says, no, be safe, be comfortable. Your religion says, just be quiet. Don't mess around with people. Don't try to change the world. It's a lost cause. There's another religion, though, that still believes that the kingdom of God is coming to earth as it is in heaven. It's the religion of Islam. You wonder why they devote themselves the way they do to transforming the entire earth, 
You wonder why they migrate just as fast and as hard as they can. You wonder why they are fruitful and they multiply and they fill the earth with their children. You wonder why all those things are true. It's because they understand what we do not understand. That it's more important to have a baby than it is to have a boat. They understand that their job in this world, no matter what specific thing they do, is for the sake of the glory of Allah. And we think it's so that we can have a comfortable retirement. They believe that the world should be run according to the will of God. And we believe that the world should be run according to the will of the people. When did the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in the idea of what a good life is become so similar? So that there's just a hair width of difference between the non-Christians you know and what they think a good life would be and what you believe a good life would be. When did that happen to us? When the idea of sacrificing for your king became idiocy, foolishness. When did that happen? When did the idea that suffering for Jesus is distasteful rather than an honor, when did that happen? When did it happen that our seminaries go on for 50, 75, 100 years and we still do not have one martyr on our rolls? When did that happen? That is not the way our branch of the church began. Let me tell you about how our branch of the church began with Father John Calvin, whom you should love and adore. He had a seminary. But for a period of about eight years, when you got your diploma from that seminary in Geneva, the students jokingly called it their death certificate. And this is why. I have a friend who used to teach at RTS with me who was the curator of the Calvin Museum in Grand Rapids for a number of years. And he told us, the faculty in a meeting, I have not seen these things myself, but this is his testimony, that they received a whole a, a trove of city council records into that museum. And he said, this is the kind of stories that are in that trove of records. He said, let me just tell you one. He said it happened over and over again. Story about a young woman who was wandering her way through the city of Geneva in the middle of the night. And she was covered from her head to her toes in blood. And she was trying to find her way to Calvin's house. And she finally got there, opened the door. The maid of the house opened the door called Calvin down, and there she was in her nightgown, covered red in blood. It was the blood of her husband. Her husband had been a missionary, a missionary to France, as many of Calvin's seminary students were. He went to France to start a church. But to do that meant you were going to die. He had come home on furlough to see his wife and children, and in their bed he was assassinated. You see, religious terrorism is not something new. 
Trying to scare Christians is not something new. Threatening to take away their children, threatening them with death is not something new. It's something that always happens when the kingdom of God goes forth with power. Always. But those young men did not stop going to France. When I first heard that story, I thought to myself, what kind of young man would do that? Not my seminary students. If they knew that the life expectancy as it was for them in Geneva was six months after graduation, you would be dead. If we knew that, there would be nobody in our seminaries in this country. Six-month life expectancy. And then I said, you know, that's really not the question. The question is, what kind of young woman, what kind of mother would allow her husband to do that? Because you know what we would tell her. He's a fool. He needs to be back home taking care of you and your children. Play it safe. What kinds of people did that? I can tell you what kinds of people did that. They were the ones that listened to what Calvin said. When he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, whatever the cost. They believed that if they went into France and into other parts of the world, one of the first Protestant missionaries to Brazil from Geneva, that they, when they did that kind of thing, they were on a mission and this mission was not going to fail. And if it cost them their lives, it was worth it all. If it cost them their lives, it was worth it all. Now, is that the attitude that we have? It's very unlikely that anybody in this church is going to die for their faith. It could happen. If it does, it'll be grand. You might say to me, as people do often when I preach like this, they say, well, Richard, are you willing to die? My answer is yes. I'm right up front, ready to go. I do it all the time. So I'm not telling you to do something that I'm not willing to do. When was it that we began to do otherwise? Our King Jesus gave his life for this. His apostles gave their lives for that. And it's the only reason you are in the kingdom of God today. In fact, the martyrs of the Christian faith in heaven, according to Revelation chapter 6, are right now before the altar of God in heaven. And they are crying out day and night. They're not happy up there, by the way. They're crying out day and night. How long? How long? until justice is done on the earth, until our blood is avenged. How long? How long? Revelation chapter 6, read it sometime. You think they're all happy up there? They're not happy up there. And do you know what Jesus says? Vengeance will come when the full number of martyrs comes in. We have been called to complete the sufferings of Jesus. One of the fathers of our denomination, you've probably heard his name before, Francis Schaeffer. I 
stood in the pulpit where he said this some 40 years ago. And I reminded the church in St. Louis what he said in that pulpit. And it was this. Evangelicalism in America died. It died when we adopted the values of the white middle class. That the most important thing in life is peace, prosperity, and safety. And he was absolutely right. So while you may not be called upon to die, you are called upon to sacrifice. While you may not be called upon to die, you are called upon to do the inconvenient. You are called upon to risk because our vision is not that you and I will die and go to heaven. Our vision is that the world will become the kingdom of God. I think it's true that when you get a big project like the mission that Christians are on, you got to have a big vision. It's got to get down, way down inside of you because hard times are coming for those who buy in. Listen to that vision one more time. It involves what you believe about God and what you believe about this earth. Our royal father enthroned in heaven. May your name be kept holy. You are our king. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make that your vision and you'll be on mission. Let's pray together. Our King Jesus, we love you so much because you adored your heavenly father and you worshiped him and served him as your king. You wanted nothing more than to see his will be done. We love you, Lord Jesus, because you gave everything to turn this world into the kingdom of God. Holy Spirit, our prayer to you is simple. Make us like Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Richard. <clears throat> Excuse me. As we finish, uh, I'm going to have, we're uh, blessed to have uh, Robbie Keene, who is a, a friend of ours for a number of years now, uh, who is English, but God called to work in Uganda. So he's currently there. Uh, he is the director of a nonprofit that does community development, mercy ministry type stuff. Some of you are here Sunday. You may have heard him describe some of those things. But another thing that he's been involved in since for many years is a church uh, and serves alongside a Ugandan pastor there. Uh, and they have been planting churches now for a number of years. Uh, and as they plant more, uh, they've experienced more persecution very much along the lines of some of the things Richard was just saying. So I wanted Robbie to come up and, and finish our time by telling you, uh, the, the story of the kind of the latest work that they've been engaged in uh, to encourage you um, because uh, it's very real what he was just describing uh, and for many people risking and sacrificing uh, for the sake of Jesus and the mission uh, is ever-present current reality and so Robbie come share with us and encourage us um, as we uh, as we finish. 
Uh, good morning. Uh, just, um, I just want to thank the Lord for um, uh, this church. Um, obviously, knowing Jonathan and Drew, uh, I had my doubts, but um, uh, uh, you know, having come and uh, seen Jamie and the Savants, and um, but obviously to come to a church in Celia and hear um, this level of teaching. Um, encouraged, allowed to be shared and to see such a healthy number of the church come to hear this sort of teaching, that's a really, really healthy, mature sign, really healthy. I mean, this is absolute truth and it needs to be shared and we need to receive it and we need to be challenged and shaped by it. So um, if you're here and you're really thinking, you know, sometimes we can come and think I'm not doing so well, be encouraged for you to come and take time to come and hear this sort of message, you're doing all right. You really are doing okay because this is what it's all about. So... Um, so my side, I'm in Uganda, um, um, so specifically to talk about the, the current church plant. Um, the area that we're in is, uh, Uganda is predominantly Christian, but the area we're in is heavily Islamic. We have the, the largest, um, they say, Islamic university in six nations in my town, which I thank God for because there's multitudes of Muslims coming to Christ every week. Um, it's quite amusing when you're in the UK and America and everyone's getting really scared about the Muslims coming over. Um, I actually think we want to try and help them come over because it's easier to lead someone of Islam to Christ than it is an atheist, in case you don't know that. Because you can actually sit down and share the gospel with them and both they'll bring their Quran and you bring your Bible and at the end you can pray for each other and, they, and a lot of them really want to know God. And you will be amazed at the number of Muslims who keep coming to us and testifying about their dreams where God is meeting them, Jesus is appearing. We've had imams and hajis from a Sunday pulpit during Eid come forward and say, I met Jesus in my bedroom last night and he told me that I'm lost and so I'm here today to renounce Islam and I'm getting saved in this church service right now. And when they do that, you know they met Jesus in their dreams because they go through hell, absolute hell. They lose their family, lose their business, they lose all their friends, people try and kill them. I mean, literally. So when they stand up and say, I met Christ last night in my dream and I'm here to get saved and renounce Islam. You know they did because the next season is going to be literally murder for them. Uh, but we're seeing many, many, many Muslims, many people of witchcraft coming to Christ. Our area has the traditional witchcraft shrines for six million people, um, one kilometer from where we live and we work. So I praise God for this because all of these people have an understanding of the spiritual world. And so when you start preaching about Christ, they have a power encounter, or you start praying for them against some of their stuff, people start getting healed, people start getting delivered, they know that your God is the real God, and they come and say, tell us about your God, so we can accept your God and get out of the false God stuff. So, just need to be encouraged that we need more Muslims and more people of witchcraft, because um, they're easier to lead to Christ than atheists. So, so this latest church plant. So with our organization, what we do is we do um, the two-handed gospel side by side. So we do classic development projects, clean health, water, schools, um, everything, kids, side by side with evangelism, church planting, discipleship, young leaders training, and all of that sort of stuff. But obviously when you're in a heavy Islamic area, um, one has to go before the other. St. Francis of Assisi used to say, go preach the gospel and use always and use words only if necessary. So what we do is we normally go into an Islamic community. If we find a church that is already in there and they're a solid church, then we support the church. We empower the church to do development projects, which builds relationships. And then dialogue begins. And then when people come to know Christ, they come into the church 
and from there the church gets empowered to do the work of the ministry. But when we go into a lot of the areas, there is no church that we can work with. So we will do development projects to love on people, to help them out of poverty and against injustice without pushing the gospel down their throats to the point that they will say, they will absolutely say at some point, why do you love us like this? Why do you help us like this? Why are you so different from everyone else that we've met? Tell us about this God of yours that you say compels you to help us in such a manner because I want that God. I want a taste of that God. So in this particular latest area, so what was really cool is that in the community to the side of them and the community above them on the mountain, we've hit them with multiple development projects. We do community health programs where we train people from the community to a government-recognized standard on the basic essentials of life, and then we support them, go share that information for, for free. So people love the fact that we're helping them to go and spread the good news of education and good living, and they see a dramatic increase in people's lifestyles change because they're not getting so sick. And then we do income-generating programs like, like goats um, and, and coffee um, and farming. It doesn't matter really what it is, but we empower people so that they can actually have take control and have a bit of uh, uh, a change in their environment because they're taking control over their own circumstances. It's not just a handout. You know, we're teaching them to basically get in front of the game proactively rather than always firefighting. So it got to the point where the Islamic leaders, and we've seen this more than once, and this happened just a f three, four months ago, four months ago. So the Islamic community leaders, what they then do is they then call the whole, so we go ahead to buy a plot of land to build a church on. So the Islamic leaders then call the whole community together and basically say, we want to stop these Christians. And this area of Bufumbo is, is I mean, the whole area is heavily Islamic and is heavily witchcraft, but this was a particularly dark, hardened place to the gospel. These people have you know, been very, very resistant to the gospel, a lot of failed church attempts historically. So we've just been praying and waiting and loving in, in tangible acts. So anyway, so we buy the plot of land, and then uh, the Islamic leaders call the whole community, and there's this big, I love Africa because they have these big community dialogues, and everyone sits down, and they say, okay, we need to refuse these Christians coming here because they want to build a church here. And then wonderfully what happens is the Muslim community themselves defend us to the Christians against their own Islamic leaders and tell them, why are you trying to start trouble against these people? These are good people. These people are loving us and helping us in ways that we don't see by you. These people never ask us for money, but you're always asking us for money. These people don't push their faith or their, their politics on us, and you always do that. And these people aren't troublemakers. They're good people helping us in a way we've never seen. And now you're telling us to refuse them. You're the troublemaker. Why don't you leave? Because we want these people to come here. So you actually see when you love in this way that Jesus compels us to love and to serve and to help, you'll see <laughs> hardcore uh, communities who are supposed to be against the gospel standing to defend you. So that's, that's the, but to give you an idea, I mean, just to encourage you that, um, you know, um, it can be done. So uh, at the moment we have, so there's not, there's not even the building at the moment. We're raising the money to build the building. It's a piece of grass. Um, and every Saturday afternoon in this hardcore Islamic witchcraft area that's refused the gospel for years, we have between three to 400 adults turning up. And we have um, 1,155 children turning up. I know that because we decided to register them the other week and it took forever. And there's no church building. 
You know, all that's happening is the guys who are going to share the gospel, they'll tell a slightly simple but slightly more mature than what we tell the children story about what Jesus does, and then we'll offer some questions and answers, and then we'll say, okay, if you need prayer, come forward, we're going to pray for you, and guess what? People get healed. People get delivered. People get touched by God. We pull people off for private prayer on the side, and so many of them are saying under their breath, I want to be a Christian. Okay, nice. Just repeat after me. I'll lead you to faith. And but you obviously don't make a big public show of it, but so many of them are getting saved on the side. And the children on the side, I mean, how's this to encourage you that every one of us has the ability to do something? The woman heading the children's ministry as a pastor's wife, her entire ministry for 30 years has been homeschooling their four children. And four months ago, for the first time in 30 years, there's no children to homeschool. So she comes to me and says, I don't think I can do anything because I've never done anything apart my own kids. So I said, okay, what can you do? And she said, well, I can tell kids. I can, I can, her words were, I can goof around with kids and tell them Bible stories and I can hug women and kiss them and encourage them. I said, great, you're ready for the ministry. So she's the one that has 1,155 kids that she's teaching. These are Muslim kids that she's teaching Christian Bible stories to telling them about Jesus and teaching them worship songs and telling them how to pray in the name of Jesus. This is all going on in this heavily Islamic community. But they like us because we've been loving on them and helping them. So, so I guess that's really, yeah, where we're at. Um, I guess just on my side, I just want to um, uh, challenge you guys. I mean, literally me standing here, um, I'm the least qualified person to be a missionary. I've been in Uganda 13 years now. Um, I left school at 16. I had no education. Um, I didn't become a Christian until I was 31. I was on the mission field one year, one year after becoming a Christian. A Christian. I never went to seminary, obviously. Um, I never done a day of charity work in my life. Um, I actually went to be a missionary with a drug problem. Literally, donkeys still talk today. Um, 13 years later, you know, I'm not into numbers. We don't make a point of counting numbers, but people say that our organization has helped somewhere between 100 to 200,000 people. That's what people say. And it's led by a guy who has no idea. If I leave the house with my clothes on in the morning, it's been a good day. Seriously. I bumble along, but, you know, God, the Lord is not interested in that. He takes the least, most unqualified, unprepared, ill-equipped people. So if you're here today thinking, well... I don't feel like I can do this. Praise God, you are absolutely qualified to step forward and do something, something. And it always begins, don't look at the mountain. So many times we look at the mountain and say, oh, I can't do that, it's so big and the need's so big and I need to do all these things and work them out. Yeah, that might all be true, but the first thing is, is you take a baby step and you go to one of these local organizations that you've heard saying, we need volunteers. Or you just come to the church. If you're really oblivious to what you can offer you come and submit to the leadership of the church and say okay I want to do two hours a week but honestly I have no idea what I can do and the leadership will help you discover what it is that you're called to do and what you're good at doing you might not even know you're good at doing but many times it's not something big and sexy it's literally many times just taking time to sit with someone and listen to someone and love someone and encourage someone and pray with someone and every one of us here can do that. Every one of us here can do that as a starting. And that's enough to make a change and to start a revival, sincerely. But it begins by you stepping forward and saying, 
I want to do something, and I don't know what that looks like, but I'm here. Help me to do that very thing. So I just close with my, a little bit to challenge you as a, uh, as a challenge. When I became a Christian and I decided to then preach to my entire family, I was the first in my family to come to Christ. No one knew Christ. So when I decided to preach to my family, no one got saved. In fact, it was the opposite. They all told me to shut up, go away, you're mental, we know you. We know you. We've known you for the last 31 years. So stop preaching. And when I decided to actually then go on mission and focus on what the Lord was telling me to do and where to go, suddenly my mum got saved, my stepdad got saved, my sister got saved, my cousin got saved, my best friend got saved, some old work colleagues got saved because they were so challenged by what I was doing that they were like, okay, that's good what you're doing and you've changed and I see something that I don't have and I don't know and that's something that I want. So now tell me about this God of yours that forces you to be different. My other sister who's a wicker witch, just to put it, people will even come to you to share stuff with you which is, I have a sister who's a wicker witch. She's not really a wicker witch. I know what a wicker witch is. I've met many witches and witch doctors and led some of them to Christ. But God bless my sister, she thinks she is. She comes to me one time, and my niece's boyfriend um, is a Satanist. Uh, not heavy, I've met some serious Satanists. But he's on a lower scale. He's been praying to Satan since he was a kid, because that's what his family does. And he does certain juju and ceremonies to Satan, curses and blessings and stuff like that. So he shares that with my sister, who's a wicker witch, who's not really, but she does do witchcraft. And she comes to me and testifies what I do can't handle what he does with Satanism, but you can help him. So I get invited by <laughs> a wicker witch to come and minister to a Satanist. And this guy, I lead the guy through various prayers, three hours of confession and repenting. This guy gives his life to Christ at the end. And then lead him through, and he ends up every single, we went through every single person he's ever done a curse on, and we prayed a blessing on him in Jesus' name. And then when we come back, now he's not in church, by the way, nor's my niece. But my niece did testify when he came back, he's changed, he's nicer, he's more at peace. He's not doing that stuff anymore. And when I came back on this trip, they moved into a new house, they're not in church yet. I don't know where they're at. But when they moved into a new house, they gave me a call, we've moved into a new house, can you come round and bless this house because we recognize the power of prayer to your God and so there's peace when you pray in this house so I just want to encourage you guys as you step forward bizarrely other doors will open behind you I will challenge you some of the reasons why our families are not getting saved is because some of us have not answered the call to go and do mission work we're standing facing them preaching at them and they're saying we know you we need to actually go and do some mission work and the Lord will open doors behind you for him to go and touch some of your family members. So I'll just throw that in there. So God bless you. Amen. Well, thanks, uh, thanks everybody for being here. Really appreciate it. Hope it was helpful. Uh, challenging. Richard, what a blessing. Thank you for being here. Uh, glad that you're so close. Uh, we really are. Because um, maybe you can come back like next week. Um, but, uh, but no, it's been a, a great blessing. So, uh, let me, uh,
Let me offer a benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you as you go. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face toward you and give you peace, uh, real peace that we know comes only through Jesus. Uh, Amen. Uh, You're dismissed. Thanks for coming.